Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, we're talking with Brian Estelle, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and David Vendrunen, who is the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics, and John Fesco, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Westminster Seminary, California. They're all here because they were all co-editors and contributors to an important volume titled The Law is Not of Faith, Essays on Works and Grace in the Mosaic Covenant. This title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Go to wscal.edu slash bookstore, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, fellows, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Good to be here. Well, the the first and most obvious question always to ask about a, a new book is, uh, first of all, what what's it about, and uh, and why did you do it? And I'll just throw that open to to all of you. Uh, there there's a lot of literature on the Mosaic Covenant. It's one of the uh, topics that um, in, everyone is interested in. Uh, certainly, I as a evangelical who you know, came to the Reformed faith from the outside, wanted to know what about uh, Moses, what about national Israel. And then as I came into the Reformed churches, I ran into this uh, movement called Theonomy, and uh, they had distinctive views about Israel um, and Moses and the Mosaic Law, and I had, we had to try to sort that out. And then, of course, th- there's the whole question of how to understand the unfolding of redemptive history. So which of these views are you addressing in this book? Well, I think that there are... Uh probably uh, several of those that are uh, addressing this book. Uh, as you suggest, uh, the Mosaic Law really has to be a pretty important uh, thing to get your hands around if you're going to be a reader of Scripture, because let's face it, a really big part of the Scriptures uh, has to do with the Mosaic Law and Israel's life under the Old Testament law. And um, I think as the three of us were... Uh, talking some years back and we were reflecting on some of the issues that seem to be of issue and debate in our uh, Reformed churches, um, we decided that, that, that it would be uh, really helpful if we put together a, a, a volume trying to figure out what is uh, going on with, with, with the Mosaic Law and, and where does it fit in God's plan uh, in history. Some of the New Testament texts that we as Protestants, we as Reformed Christians, think are, are, are so crucial, uh, like in Galatians and Romans. Some of those very texts, uh, Paul contrasts the Mosaic Law uh, with what he says about faith and justification. So he'll quote Leviticus 18, verse 5, the one who does these things will live by them, and contrast that with justification by faith. Uh, uh, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we know that from many other places in Scripture that God's saving grace was at work uh, under Moses, and God's Old Testament people were saved by grace through faith. And yet we have Paul also saying that the Mosaic Law expresses this principle of works that is different from the principle of justification by faith. And so that's really one of the the main questions we wanted to help uh, answer or to help our our brothers and sisters in Reformed churches think through is, is what's going on with the Mosaic Law such that we recognize that there is God's grace uh, that is being shown to the Old Testament people, and yet there's also this expression of law, uh, which expresses this idea of, of works, of a covenant of works, 
that uh, is, is different and, and, uh, under the New Testament and has been fulfilled by Christ and his work. The title of the volume is striking. The law is not of faith. It's actually a quotation from Galatians 3, verse 12. I can imagine someone walking into, you know, the Westminster Seminary California bookstore and looking at the section of faculty books and uh, looking looking at that title and thinking, wow, that's a provocative title. But uh, you fellows didn't make that up. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> In a sense, Paul did. <laughs> okay. Well, th- you know, that's interesting. There are, there are a variety of ways of talking about Moses and Christ and how they relate, and particularly about the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament, Sinai. Can you fellows sort of sketch for us the landscape? What are the different ways that people have talked about that, and where does your book fall on that landscape? I suppose it all depends on one's definition of law. Law in the Scriptures can mean a number of things. It can be a term that means the entirety of the Old Testament, Uh, so that it's contrasting the New Testament and the Old Testament, per se. It could also refer to uh, a body of laws uh, within the Pentateuch itself, but sometimes it can also be a reference to the Mosaic Covenant itself. And I think that there are a number of points, especially in Paul's letters, uh, most notably Galatians or Romans, where he will contrast uh, what we have would say, I think, is a works principle with faith, so that this is one of the things I think that lies behind the title of the book, as well as Galatians 3.12, that the law is not of faith. It's the one who does them will live by them, uh, quoting Leviticus 18.5. And it's the idea that the way that you are justified by the law is by doing the law. Whereas Paul is saying that in a post-fall world, and especially in the light of Christ and his revelation and his work, we're not justified by works, but rather we're justified by faith and faith alone in him. And so I think that's at least a very quick sketch in terms of uh, the different uh, ideas that you see in connection with the idea of law itself, and specifically as it relates to the title of the book, or perhaps as Paul uses it in Galatians. But there are other ways that people have construed these things. Um, For example, dispensationalism. What do the dispensationalists—and I know there are varieties of dispensationalism. Uh, You know, obviously there's the original version, or— perhaps classical dispensationalism, modified dispensationalism, and then progressive dispensationalism. And here we're blessed. We have two systematic theologians in the room with us and one uh, biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar, and we'll give him a chance to take a crack at some of these here in a, in a second. But, but maybe the systematicians can, can give us a sense of, of where what you're saying uh, stands in relation to the various dispensational schemes. Well, if you look at a at a very classic dispensationalist uh, idea uh, that the Mosaic Law really offers a different way of being right with God, a, a, a different way of, of salvation, and uh, such that when uh, Christ is revealed and, and the church comes into the picture, you really have two different peoples of God because there are, there are two different ways to relate to God, one by law, one by faith in Christ. Uh, Certainly what we're uh, doing in this book, what, what all of the contributors to this book, and of course there are, there are uh, a number of contributors from uh, other institutions uh, uh, other than just Westminster, California, but all of us would be uh, uh, very much uh, uh, in a different place from that dispensationalist system. We would all be uh, convinced that there is one plan of God in salvation. There is ultimately one people of God through all of redemptive history. Um, when uh, when God brings the Mosaic Law into the world on Mount Sinai, 
uh, through Moses. He's not presenting a different way of salvation, uh, but he is dealing with his people in a different way from the way he had dealt with them before or the way he deals with them now. And what this law did uh, was not to uh, give them a way by which they could actually be justified, but it was a way to, uh, to remind them and to put before them in a very rigorous fashion the will of God and to remind them that uh, and to teach them that it is ultimately through obedience to God's law that one is going to be able to live uh, and enjoy fellowship with God. And God's people needed to learn that they ultimately were not able to do that, that they, they could, could never earn uh, uh, God's blessing. They could never live up to that standard. And so when Christ comes, he comes as one under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4. He comes as one who actually takes that burden of the law upon himself and fulfills it perfectly and thereby uh, uh, earns our salvation. And so uh, if we would look, for example, at Galatians 3, Paul lays out sort of the broad scheme of redemptive history from the promises to Abraham, the giving of the law, and now our condition uh, under Christ. And it's all part of one plan. And, and the law, the Mosaic law, serves as this pedagogue, this instructor uh, that prepares God's Old Testament people for Christ, for his obedience to the law, so that ultimately they would look not to themselves because that would only be, it would only result in failure. Only look to Christ who alone fulfills the law for them. And so it's, it's, it's one big, one grand unified plan of, of history, though it, it proceeds and unfolds in different steps. You're listening to Office Hours. This is the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California. We're discussing with uh, three of our faculty the new book, The Law is Not of Faith, Essays on Works and Grace, in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Brian, you're an Old Testament scholar, and so let, let me ask you this question. Is it the case that, because David and John have both talked about the, uh, the, the fact that the, the law was given to Israel that had a works principle, is that the first time that happens in Scripture, or has it ever happened before? Uh, no. Part of what we wanted to demonstrate in the book was that, in some sense, this is a republication of a works principle that is first found in the Garden of Eden in the great probation testing of the covenant of works that God gave to Adam. So that if uh, God gave him a commandment not to eat of the knowledge of the tree uh, of good and evil, lest he die, and the implication is that he would receive life if he did not eat of the tree. And so uh, that is, in a sense, republished, although not exactly the same. In some sense, uh, there are uh, distinctions, but there are also similarities uh, with this works principle as it shows up in the mosaic economy. And we wanted to take pains to show that because that has been a main staple of many covenant theologians' discussion of the mosaic economy until recently. In fact, if I could pick up briefly on the previous question that you asked, Dave, part of our goal in writing this book and part of our common assumption, at least for the three editors of the book, was that perhaps Reformed theology had stopped talking about this works principle within the Mosaic economy, an embedded works principle in the administration of the covenant of grace, because of an overreaction, if you will, to dispensationalism. And we were um, of the common opinion that we needed to help the church get over its ahistoricism, if you will, help the academy get over that, and to see much of the rich exegesis and discussion that had happened through the centuries 
with regards to the mosaic economy. That's what we had in mind as we uh, saw some of the contributors. Uh, now, John, Brian used the R word. And in some circles, the, that is republication, uh, the, the, the word republication, to talk about a republication of the covenant of works is considered either, uh, one, a novelty, and I've had that said to me, people have either written to me or said to me, well, th- this is some crazy newfangled idea, or it's some sort of corruption of historic, traditional covenant theology. You have strong historical interests. You did your doctoral work in historical theology. Uh, is it the case that, that the uh, doctrine of republication is some novelty that was invented in the 1960s or 70s, or where do, from where does it come? That's a terrific question, and it's an important one because I'm not sure how far the trend goes, but I think that within the the previous generation of Reformed scholars, for one reason or another, seemingly appeared to be quite unhistorical in their theology, and that they would not dig very far. And coming to their conclusions, it was often working with um, the, the texts of the scriptures and their own conclusions, and that's not just for one or two isolated theologians. There are a number of them that, that did this, and so perhaps the generation of pastors and scholars that sat under their teaching were unfamiliar then with uh, the history of the doctrine. And so this is one of the the gaps that we wanted to address in the book to show people that to talk about the republication of the covenant of works uh, is not a new idea. If you read a number of works, one of the things I knew that when I was first studying the, the subject, you'd read Robert Shaw's commentary on the Westminster Standards, and he talked about uh, that uh, the covenant Mosaic Covenant was a national covenant of works with Israel, or you can find similar types of statements in Charles Hodge, in his First uh, Corinthians commentary and his Romans commentary, as well as in his systematic theology. So, and these theologians weren't getting this uh, whole cloth from themselves, but rather they're interacting with the earlier Reformed tradition on the subject. And so that was certainly one of the things we wanted to address to say that this was a common staple of Reformed theology for a long time, but we always like to qualify it by saying it's a republication of the covenant of works in some sense, because we didn't want to put forth one particular view of republication in the book, because we wanted to recognize that there are a number of different ways that theologians from the tradition would formulate it, and so that's one of the chapters addresses that, uh, Brent Ferry's chapter. I think if memory serves correctly, he notes some 14 different uh, formulations of how that would occur. And so that was important, as well as we wanted to give the contributors a great degree of freedom in uh, expressing their own views on the subject, so that this is why we say that it's the republication of the covenant of works in some sense. I noticed that uh, one of the chapters in here is by Byron Curtis. It's on Hosea 6-7, which is one of the classic proof texts for the doctrine of the covenant of works. And uh, the rest of the title is, And Covenant Breaking Like slash at Adam. Uh, so maybe uh, it would be good if you fellows could address this this question, because that's one of the classic texts. I know Warfield uh, wrote on that at least a little a popular piece. Uh, and then behind that, I guess it seems to me that one of the reasons why people are reluctant to embrace this idea of republication is not only are they not aware of the tradition of talking that way. Can, can you address that and then tie in Hosea 6-7? Byron wrote an article for us on this classic passage and also situating 
that passage within the context of Hosea as a whole. I think this is perhaps a good place to, to say that we were pleasantly surprised at the caliber of scholarship that we received from a number of our contributors. So not only does Byron take up the issue of what the reference to Adam was there in Hosea 6-7, and the main tension in scholarship to date has been, is this a reference to the so-called covenant of works referring back to Adam, uh, the federal representative head of the human race, as he went through a probation uh, that he was given by God to fulfill on behalf of uh, the human race? Or is, uh, is this a place name, a city? Byron actually makes the ingenious argument, and I found it quite compelling, uh, that it is both. In other words, this is a double entendre. Um, and he makes his case uh, based upon uh, Hosea's use of Hebrew and language. He, uh, Hosea was a punster. All you have to do is read chapter 1 and know with the daughters uh, that are referred to, uh, the, the, the uh, children that were given to Hosea or were not given to Hosea, two of them were probably not his own children, um, that uh, there are puns all over Hosea, and, and Byron builds his case that uh, Hosea was a punster, and therefore this should be seen as uh, both uh, a reference to a place name and also to the original uh, covenant of works. So like Adam, they have broken uh, my covenant, but also uh, to the original audience, it probably uh, referred to a place name as well and had some resonance uh, along those lines. So it's not the case that, as uh, as I've read and has been said, that, well, uh, we know this refers to a place and it doesn't really refer to a historical covenant breaking by Adam, and therefore this text is invalid and doesn't really suggest, as has traditionally been taken, a covenant of works. And Byron is saying, well, wait a minute, not so fast. Uh, there is, in fact, evidence to say that it does both things, and we don't have to choose necessarily between them. Ab- absolutely. And I think Byron has made his case, and as I started to say previously, this is a good piece of scholarship where he brings uh, the best of uh, critical scholarship and also his conservative approach to Hosea to demonstrate that that's the case. I heard Byron give this paper after he had written the article for the Society of Biblical Literature's national meeting in Boston. And I had immediately come from another session previous to attending Brian's session where a a uh, well-known scholar, biblical scholar from Tel Aviv, was arguing that many of the references in the book of Job were given to a learned bilingual audience that knew both Akkadian and Hebrew, and that the author of Job was making puns in Hebrew mm-hmm. that the original audience would have understand because of their Akkadian facility as well. Now, if that's the case in a biblical book, in a very sophisticated way, that uh, someone can make puns where you can understand uh, a double reference to two different languages, then surely that's uh, the case in in Hosea, especially when when we know that Hosea was given over to be a punster and make all kinds of puns. Mm -hmm. You know, Scott, if if I could just just, uh, uh, add to that, you know, the— the big picture implications of of what Byron Curtis argues is 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 really important for for our thesis, and it's what Hosea is doing there. If Byron Curtis is right, uh, is analogizing 
the uh, Israel's breaking of the covenant with Adam's breaking of the original covenant of creation, the covenant of works. Mm. Uh, and, and that, in a sense, is saying there's a certain republication mm. of, the, of the covenant of works in the Mosaic covenant, in that in, in the covenant of works with Adam, uh, God required perfect obedience, and that was the way to life. And there was something of that in the Mosaic Covenant. There was people of Israel needed to learn that God requires perfect obedience, and they couldn't do it. They broke it. But all of that, the whole purpose of this is to point to Christ, that Christ is the one who does what Adam couldn't do. Christ is the one who did what Israel couldn't do. Christ is the one who offers that perfect obedience, and that's why we are justified by faith alone uh, uh, in him. And so this, to, to, to see this very simple phrase in Hosea 6-7, um, uh, analogizing Israel and, and Adam's covenant breaking, it gives you a sort of window into the whole, the whole of redemptive history and, and, and the, the whole of the gospel, and it's a very beautiful picture. You were listening to Office Hours, and we're discussing the volume, The Law is Not of Faith, Essays on Works and Grace in the Mosaic Covenant, and we're doing so with the uh, editors of this volume, Brian Estelle, John Fesco, and David Vendrunen. Men, uh, behind then the concern about republication, it seems to me, is uh, a more fundamental question in a sense, and that is whether there was even a covenant of works, which we've already talked about in Hosea 6-7. Here's a question. Why are people so reluctant to uh, see in Scripture a covenant of works? To me, it seems very plain. When God says, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, that I don't know how else to describe that except as a covenant of works. It seems to me that if my neighbor says, the day you cross into my yard, I'll shoot you in the head, that's a strict legal covenant. And it's not, it's not a gracious covenant. If a gracious covenant would say, if you cross over, I'll, you know, I will unconditionally accept you and nothing bad will happen. In fact, I will give you good things. Uh, but here it says, if you transgress, I will kill you. And it's not just a man, it's God saying that. So if it seems so evident to me, and I guess to you, why do people have such a hard time, John? What, what is it that troubles them about the covenant of works? There are probably a number of factors. You could begin with personal theological observations in that uh, we're all Pelagians and semi-Pelagians at heart, and so we're always— What do you mean by that? Uh, saying that, at least for the unbeliever, that there's some sense in which we can earn our salvation in God's presence— uh, or as a semi-Pelagian saying that it's partially of works and partially of grace. And if that's the case, then Adam's state in the garden must have been set up in a similar fashion, that it was a partial works slash uh, grace uh, set up. And if that's the case, well, if that's the case of Adam in the garden, then that's certainly more or less going to be the same type of situation with, uh, s- with Sinai and the Mosaic Covenant. You also have other scholars saying, uh, for example, historically, at least in the recent past, that, well, no, certainly Paul is not saying that uh, the way to be justified by the law is through obedience. He must be re- quoting uh, the Judaizers here, and this must be their distortion of the Old Testament. But if we, uh, you know, and then a third stream that feeds into this, and I don't know how, whatever uh, what else uh, Dave or Brian might chip in here, but a third stream would be is that if we're only, uh, re- if we only receive the... Uh, passive obedience of Christ in our in our just in our justification then there's no need at least according to those assumptions that we would need the positive law keeping of Christ mm. to be imputed to us as well and so for all of these reasons 
from varying degrees from one person to another, you're going to see uh, rejection of the covenant of works or rejection of the works principle at, at, at Sinai. But Dave, I, I don't know what else you'd want to chip in there. Well, I think what I would add is that uh, I think there are a lot of people who have this concern, and it's a legitimate concern that, that we don't put human beings on the same level with God. And that I think some people are concerned that if we talk about, you know, if Adam had done that, God would have done that, as if mm. they were sort of equal partners. And if Adam had done it, well, God would have owed it to him, just sort of like if you do, you know, some work for me, then I owe you a certain amount of money. And uh, that's a legitimate concern because, of course, there is this great creator-creature distinction. Uh, man never deals with God on this sort of equal playing field. But uh, I think the big uh, the 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 answer to that to, to that concern is not to throw out the idea of of a, of a covenant of works. I think what what the solution is is to emphasize this is a covenant of works. Mm. Is that uh, this is not God and man just meeting as strangers on the street. Uh, this is God in His own sovereignty, uh, in His own good pleasure, entering into a relationship uh, with human beings. And when God does that. Uh, he can set the terms uh, upon which that covenant is administered. And um, we don't have to flatten out the creator-creature distinction to uphold uh, a covenant of, of works. But God comes and God sets the terms. And God says, if you obey my law, I will reward you in this way. Uh, and uh, uh, that's something that Adam had the ability to do. Um, he still would have been a debtor, in a sense, to God's generosity and God's bounty, uh, but I think it's still very important to recognize that he would have earned it. It would have been because of what he did. And that is, as Paul explains, that's set in stark contrast to how it is now for us as sinners in Christ. Don't do it, but Christ does it for us, and we need to rest in him uh, to uh, receive that great uh, reward of life. And it's not like it's not in the Reformed Confessions. I mean, th this is not a sort of purely theoretical, theological construct that uh, acad academicians have invented in the Ivory Tower. This is something that, that the churches, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, in England, in Scotland, in France, uh, and in, then, of course, in the New World, all confessed. Uh, Belgian Confession— Article 14 speaks of the commandment of life, which is a shorthand way, I think, of speaking of a, a legal covenant, uh, you know, a covenant of life, covenant of nature, covenant of works, life being the goal, nature being the situation, uh, the law being the standard. Uh, and then, of course, in the Westminster Confession, an explicit articulation of the language, a covenant of, of, of works. What's the theological cost of giving up the covenant of works. I, I understand that people think that, you know, if we if we say everything is of grace, it was a gracious arrangement before the fall, and that an, has an ancient pedigree in, in the medieval church. The Skilderites have sometimes talked about a covenant of favor before the fall instead of a covenant of works. And then, of course, Karl Barth came in the 20th century and reconstructed Reformed theology so that grace, according to Burkhauer anyway, swallows up everything. There is no real law principle. What happens then if we give up that law principle? What happens to the work of Christ? We, we impoverish our understanding of the work of Christ. How so? I think with regards to the three of us, this was part of the reason why we wanted to undertake this project. Um, that we were concerned not only about the ahistoricism that we were recognizing in the academy and in the church that was alluded to earlier, but also uh, the lack of 
appreciation and cordial attachment, not only to the statements and the confessions to which we all adhere, uh, but also to what seems to be the clear teaching of the data of Scripture, especially looked at from a systematic perspective and especially looked at through time in a redemptive historical perspective. It was, as is often said around this campus, J.G. Machen, who wrote in his, you know, some of his final words to Professor Murray, thanks God for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. I think all three of us would say it's not that one cannot understand justification if one doesn't get the covenant of works right. But at least speaking for myself, I would say that one will perhaps have a much thinner description of the doctrine of justification particularly the active obedience of Christ, as opposed to a thicker understanding or description of Christ's work if one jettisons the, um, the doctrine of the covenant of works. There's been such a shift on a paradigmatic level in philosophical spheres to relationality, the uh, merit and the legal aspects of the doctrine of justification have largely gone by the wayside. But also, picking up your question earlier, I think that the results of critical analysis of the early chapters of Genesis and calling into question what actually is going on there have contributed uh, as well. People have lost uh, confidence somewhat in the historicity of the narrative about Adam and and the reality of that. Sure, exactly. In a sense, if I can can fill in here or jump in, is it the case that— insistence on the uh, confessional language and thinking about the Adamic uh, arrangement as a covenant of works actually helps reinforce the notion of a historical Adam in a real time and a real place? Uh, Absolutely. And therefore, what was imposed upon Adam, namely that he should obey and therefore not die, which interestingly in the Mosaic covenant is stated the other way around. Hmm. Uh, positively, that if one would do these things, then one will live. That teaches us about Christ's uh, coming. First, in respect to the first Adam, the Christ is the second Adam, and therefore fulfills all righteousness on our behalf and imputes that righteousness to us. With regards to Israel, as the new Adam, so to speak, God wanted to teach the Israelites, us, something. He wanted to teach them something, and since really Israel is mankind written in small uh, or in miniature, he wanted to teach us something through uh, certain aspects of what the Israelites went through and failed to do. And so there the law principle, do this and you will live, and especially as it relates to tenure in the land, is pedagogically related to us in that it teaches us what is necessary for salvation. There must be a true son. There must be a true Adam. There must be a true Israel who will do these things and receive the approbation of God. Um, Israel failed to do that. We failed to do that. But thanks be to God that he uh, has sent his son, who was not only the penalty payer for our failure, but also the probation keeper that kept all the law of God. That was our great concern uh, doctrinally to make sure that those great truths, those eternal verities were not suppressed but rather brought to light. And these are the kinds of things that you see, for example, and I think John suggested this earlier and David touched on it, uh, you see this in Romans 5, right, where you have Paul saying, contrasting Adam's 
uh, disobedience, or at least disobedience, uh, sin as disobedience, and then uh, Christ's one act of righteousness, right? And I, I'm thinking here, too, of the suggestion by some of the federal visionists that we shouldn't think of Adam as being in a legal relationship, but rather uh, maturing is the language that they've, that they've advocated, which, as a historian, takes me right back to the Middle Ages and to the uh, doctrine of some of the mainstream medieval theologians of uh, the you know, super-added grace and the, the old medieval doctrine of concupiscence and so forth, that uh, grace was meant to, to uh, suppress. So there, uh, it seems to me that uh, when, you're, when you put this in a legal framework rather than a framework of maturity, you've set the stage, as Paul does, to talk about Christ's obedience. Now, two, two quick things. When we talk about active obedience, what do we mean? And, and what are we not saying? And the second thing I want to get to before we run out of time here is to make clear that what make clear what you're not saying about Israel and obedience. But first of all, active obedience. What does that mean, David? Well, when we refer to the active obedience of Christ, uh, and we, when we contrast it to the passive obedience, we're not talking about one in which Christ was very energetic and doing things, and the other obedience is when he's just sort of sitting on his couch and letting things be done to him. Uh, when we talk about first his passive obedience, we're talking about Christ's suffering obedience, uh, his enduring. Uh, the wrath and curse of God against sin that was due to us. When we talk about his active obedience, we are talking about his, his fulfilling the requirements of the law, not just suffering its penalty, but actually fulfilling all of its, its demands and, and, and requirements. And, and that gets back to what Brian was, 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 was talking about, is that the first Adam uh, was required to keep God's law perfectly, and he failed. But that requirement still holds for mankind. And so when Christ comes, he comes not just to, to bear the, the, the punishment for sins, but actually to fulfill that original requirement of keeping God's law in its entirety. And that's what we, what we mean when we talk about his active uh, obedience on our behalf. We're really talking about two aspects of his entire life. He was obeying and he was suffering all of his life. That, right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's there's a, a misconception sometimes that Christ was sort of actively obedient through most of his life and sort of on the last day of his life when he hung on the cross, he was passively obedient. But that's not the case, that, that, that Christ was suffering through his entire life, paying the penalty for sin, and that culminated in the cross. Uh, and Christ was perfectly obeying uh, God and showing love to God and neighbor all through his life, including on the cross, the, the supreme act of love for uh, for God and neighbor. And that construct really of of those who see Jesus' work in terms of phases, really is part of actually denying the imputation of active obedience, because they are setting it up so that Jesus had to qualify himself, which they learned from Anselm, maybe from others, that Jesus had to qualify himself to be a Savior. Then at some point, having uh, ostensibly qualified himself, now he can be a Savior on, on the cross. And we're saying, no, he, he was born qualified. He was born for us, obeyed uh, for us, all of his life suffered for us, all of his life, and, and 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 you're arguing then that these things are intimately connected to the the idea of republication, the covenant of works, and the work of Christ for us. All right, one last thing I want to get to, uh, so that there's just no misunderstanding. I'd like to hear you say what you're not saying. What are you not saying about national Israel, and? their relationship to the covenant of works? Well, uh, this is 
this I imagine is is what you have in mind. And and this is certainly something we would want to say strongly is that we are not in any way saying that Israel might possibly have been justified and be given eternal life by perfect obedience to the law. It was never God's intentions were never to give the law as an alternative way to gain entrance into heaven. Uh, it was all part of a pedagogical purpose of God in the larger scheme of redemptive history. But uh, Old Testament Israelites, um, Moses himself, David, Elijah, Isaiah, they were all saved by grace through faith in that coming Messiah. And I would just add that that separates us from classic dispensationalism. Even since this book has been published and seen the light of day, uh, we have been accused of rehashing dispensational arguments. We don't recognize ourselves in those book reviews, frankly, um, because part of what we set out to do was to say we need to get back to the hard task of talking about this principle of works that is evident and demonstrated there in the scriptures, but we need to be faithful to talk about it as we should carefully within the context of the covenant of grace and reinforcing exactly what David just said, that we are not saying that anybody enters into eschatological life, heaven, receives the approbation of God by virtue of their own works. And it was for other reasons that that uh, principle of, of works is, is put there. And if I just may add briefly, this book is full of a lot of technical arguments and a lot of sophisticated exegesis and some original uh, contributions even that I think have not come to print heretofore. But we, from the very beginning, saw and want to reaffirm that we don't think these matters are beyond the simplest in the church grasping. In other words, when we talk about strict justice and the importance of merit with respect to salvation and understanding salvation, that's something even a child can understand if a pastor will, will uh, make it palatable for that person. When we talk about typology, you know, it uh, has often been said to us even before we undertook this project, these matters are too difficult. If you introduce these matters in talking about the mosaic economy in the church, then people will not be able to grasp that. People without theological training, people under 18, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we have all kinds of anecdotal uh, evidence to the contrary. My pastor preaches on these matters, and my kids and others' children get it. They see that it is all with a view to Christ and pointing out his active obedience, his wonderful probation-keeping that God put these matters in place. And so I would just like to insert that quickly uh, to say that uh, these are matters that, if carefully handled and accurately taught, even the simplest and youngest person in the church can grasp it and have their own faith edified. It's not like children don't understand a covenant of works. I mean, they enter into covenant of works all the time with with each other as you know, as fellows, and they enter into covenant covenants of works with their parents all the time. Unless things have radically changed since my kids left the house and since I grew up, but uh, I, I surely grew up under a covenant of works. Uh, I, I think my father said, do this and live many times. <laughs> or do this and get your allowance. Well, and if you yeah. don't give them their allowance and they do it, they cry foul. Well, because a uh, matter of justice. I, I think one of the way I, I don't know, the way I simplified in my own mind that I think that a child could grasp it is the idea that Adam was offered life on the condition of his obedience. He could, but didn't. 
Israel was offered life on the condition of obedience. They couldn't because they were fallen and therefore didn't. Christ takes that same promise of life offered both to Adam and to Israel, and not only could he, but he did. And I think that that summarizes, I think in a nutshell, at least in my mind, the, the whole principle of republication. All right. Well, that's a great way to end this interview. I'm grateful for your time, and and I hope people will avail themselves of this book. They can get it at the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And in it, you will find contributions not only from our guests today, but also from uh, Steve Baugh on uh, Romans 5, T. David Gordon on Galatians 3, Guy Waters on Romans uh, 10.5, David Madrunin's uh, article on natural law and the works principle under Adam and Moses. And then Mike Horton has a chapter in here, Obedience is Better Than Sacrifice. We've been talking about the law is not of faith, essays on works and grace in the Mosaic Covenant. Well, that's it for Office Hours. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, and to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, to Adam Kloss for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen online to Office Hours at wscal.edu slash office hours or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash office hours. We want to hear from you. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. That's office hours, one word, at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.